0: I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5, that's where we're going to be in this message as we launch a new sermon series called Unsung Heroes. Unsung Heroes of the Bible. And when you think of the founding of our country, You might think of George Washington. You might think of Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin. But then there was John Adams, who was not tall and imposing like Washington. He wasn't a lean and handsome Renaissance man like Jefferson. He wasn't an inventor like Franklin, yet he played a key role in the founding of our country. He was assigned the privilege of putting together the Declaration of Independence. Yet he gave the task to Jefferson because Jefferson was known for his writing skills. He was willing to let another man get the glory while he worked quietly behind the scenes. That's an unsung hero. And friends, I don't know about you, I know about me. I don't think I'm ever going to make national headlines, at least I hope I don't for the wrong reasons. And I don't think too many of us are going to write songs or have songs written about us. Probably not going to be destined for the best selling list of authors. But what we do for the kingdom of God can be great. Even unsung heroes. And I'm gonna argue, especially unsung heroes can do a lot of work for the kingdom of God. You know, Leonard Bernstein once said that the hardest instrument to play was a second violin because no one wants to play a second fiddle. Well, the series that we begin today is a series of the second fiddles of the Bible who were incredibly influential In small yet significant ways They're the John Adams of the Bible They're content to be in the shadows of the great And I want to invite you to discover greatness That can happen just outside the limelight Well I hope you have your Bibles open to 2 Kings chapter 5 And let's start reading We're going to launch right into this We're going to read verse 1 and 2 And then I'm going to talk about that a little bit and then we'll get back and really look at verses two through four. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. Well, let me give you a little bit of an overview. We're gonna actually take several minutes. I'm gonna give you some background. I'm gonna walk you through verses one through 16, kind of narratively. We're not gonna go through expositionally all those verses. We're gonna come back to verse two in a little while, but we gotta get our bearings. By the way, I don't know if you like to take journeys and map it out. I don't know if you like to take a hike and get a trail map out or if you like to go biking at Jacobsburg or other parks and before you do you want to get a trail map because you don't want to get lost well you got to know your your point where you're beginning and you got to know where you want to go well that's why we look at the context that's why it's important to look at not just one verse but you want to expand it you want to get your bearings you want to get your surrounding markers and that's what we're going to do for a little bit right now. So Naaman, commander of the army, verse 1, let's look at it again. He's the commander of the army of the king of Syria. Now your Bible, your Bible might say he's the commander of the king of Aram. Mine says Syria. They're the same people. Syria was a region of people. By the way, they descended from the youngest son of Shem. Think Noah and his three sons. His son Shem produced the Aramites or the Syrians. His son Shem had a son. His name was Aram and from Aram came the Syrians or the Bible sometimes calls them the Aramites. And they occupied and this is really important. They occupied a territory that God had said to Abraham is yours. In fact, he said it here in Genesis 15 on that day, the Lord made a covenant with abram saying to your offspring i give this land from the river of egypt way down south all the way up to the river euphrates think iraq euphrates goes right through it you got the euphrates river that cuts right through the region of syria so king david says wait a minute god said it belongs to the jewish people and it's being inhabited by the Syrians. This is our land. This is our land from the Egypt, from the Nile River all the way up to the Euphrates. We're gonna go get it. So King David begins to conquer the Syrians and he eventually forces the Syrians or the Aramites to submit. And they stay in that submission all the way through Solomon, all the way to Solomon's son, when because of Solomon's sin, God splits the nation of israel into two kingdoms a civil war erupts and syria says now is the time to get our land back so you get through second kings and right now in chapter five they're in a ceasefire well listen you go to chapter six they're back in battle with the syrians israel and the syrians on and off war Go back to verse 1, how interesting. It says this, because by him, by Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria, by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. God is giving victory to a pagan commander who is fighting his people. God's ways are higher than our ways. He always has a purpose for what he does, but this is flexing this is interesting by the way you can keep bringing this story right into modern times you can bring it right into our own lives don't you have periods of time Christian brothers and sisters when it seems like the people of the world gain the upper hand against you I mean you're trying to serve the Lord at work and then all of a sudden gossip all of a sudden slander erupts and you're the one that's being passed over for promotions you haven't done anything wrong it seems like the world is getting the upper hand ever been serving the Lord on your college campus and it seems like everything is falling apart and people are just turning against you and ostracizing you and rejecting you? Listen, it seems for a while that people can get the upper hand, yet God is superintending all of this. God is giving the victory to Naaman. How is that for sovereignty? How is that for the God that sits on the throne who directs the king's heart like a water course? who takes the dice that are thrown in Proverbs and determines their outcome. Is there anything, Christian brother and sister, now listen, is there anything that can happen in your life that is not underneath the sovereign power of God? The answer is no. But the plot line of this story in chapter 5 takes a dramatic turn. Look at verse 1 again. The very end of it says, but he was a leper. You've got this great man, Naaman. You've got this man highly favored by his king. He is a mighty man of courage. He is victorious because of God. Now listen, but he is a leper. To be clear, no one really knows if this is a skin infection Or if this is Hansen's disease, which is full blown bacterial leprosy, nobody knows I'm going to give you what I think it is, but it's leprosy and lepers were common all through Israel in the times of Elisha and they were common throughout the world as well in this period of history. In fact, if you wanted to at some point, I'd invite you take Leviticus 13 of your Bible, open it up. There's 59 verses in that chapter, and every single one of them are devoted to the treatment of lepers, how to protect the community of Israel. You know, experts have found traces of bacterial leprosy in mummies from Egypt, Egyptian mummies. They believe it began there. They believe it developed there. It's contagious, leprosy is. It spreads through the air bodily contact even clothes can carry the bacteria and it usually starts with this white pinkish patch of skin typically on the nose the ear forehead or face that's usually where it begins it begins to spread and eyebrows and eyelashes begin to disappear and then spongy tumorous growths begin on the face and they spread throughout the entire body, and it progresses, and it attacks the larynx, the vocal cords, so that when you listen to a leper with advanced leprosy, they sound like they are speaking through a harsh, grating voice, and it begins to invade the bone marrow, it begins to prevent blood supply, so it's not that fingers, and noses, and ears, and lips fall off of a leper, what happens is their body, their marrow, can't, get the blood where it needs to go, and the body begins to reabsorb the appendages. Your fingers get reabsorbed back in your body. Your eyelids reabsorb and your nose reabsorbs. Your eyes go blind, your teeth fall out, but the horror is even worse with what I'm about to tell you. Leprosy is so destructive ultimately because it attacks your nerve sheaths that go throughout your body. This is Hansen's disease. This is full-blown leprosy. What it does is your brain, you you pick up a coal from the fire and you've got leprosy and it cannot get the pain signals to your brain back so that you move your hand away. So a leper will pick up a coal not feeling anything. Then all of a sudden their fingers begin to burn and blister and infect. And if you don't get the infection treated, then it begins to spread and become gangrene and begins to need amputation. You could often smell a leper approaching before you could see them because they're rotting flesh. Listen, it was a death sentence. Leprosy was worse than modern day AIDS. There is treatment for AIDS that can make you comfortable. There is treatment for AIDS, now they think, where they can arrest the spread of it. But listen, back then there was nothing. There was no treatment whatsoever. Nobody before chapter 5 ever in the Bible was cured of leprosy. Never. And it's the extent of what Naaman is about to do that convinces me that he's got the beginnings of full-blown Hansen's disease called leprosy. The entire verse 1 turns on this word, but. But he had leprosy. It doesn't matter how great you are. It doesn't matter how many accomplishments you've made. It doesn't matter how many people love you. If you've got a but in your life, like leprosy or in supply, whatever that might be. It will dominate everything. The Bible calls them thorns in our flesh, and they make us realize our need for God's grace. Here's what leprosy did for Naaman. Here's what leprosy does for us, and by leprosy I mean those things that you cannot fix, those things you cannot control, those things that begin to bow you down under their weights they come on your shoulders and they begin to weigh you down and you begin to stoop and you begin to lower and you get lower and lower until all of a sudden you're on the level of a little child who's about to speak in verse two and finally you can hear you understand that leprosy was what god is about to use to save naaman's soul And while we would recoil at anything like that, and while we do recoil with the massive trials that come into our lives, have you ever heard the pronouncement that you have cancer, or that you have a heart disease, maybe congestive heart failure, you've heard a doctor pronounce that, all of a sudden that but begins to come into your life and it completely redoes and remakes your perspective. She told him, this little girl, about a prophet in Israel who can cure him. Look at verse 5. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Now, I don't know if you like to hear amounts that go with these ancient biblical terminologies. I do. So I kind of went to figure this out. Last Tuesday, I checked the market analysis of gold and silver, And here's what the amount was in our currency. You take 10 talents of silver, that equals 8,448 troy ounces, and that's valued today at $142,095. That's just the silver. You take the 6 shekels, 6,000 shekels of gold, that's 2,400 ounces. Listen, that's 2,000,000. In $6,400 in our currency. You take, let's, let's just say, 10 changes of clothing. They're high-end clothing. I'm going to undervalue them at $1,000 per change of clothing. That's $10,000. You put all four of them together. What Naaman brings with him, the gift that he brings with him, is $3,058,493 a lot of money He really wants a miracle You know what that tells you about Naaman Tells you that he's a pagan Tells you that he is bought into the pay-as-you-go miracle philosophy you want your God to do something great, then you got to bring a gift that is great. You got to manipulate your God. You got to be able to pay for what it is that you want God to do. But that's not what grace does. That's not the gospel to the gospel is this. God saved you because you could not save yourself. And he did it through his son. He saved you from eternal condemnation. He saved you for a joyful eternity of serving God together with God's people. He did it through the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why we sang, lead me to the cross. That's why Matthew pre, uh, moved us into there through prayer. Listen, this is the gospel. And he did it all for the fame of his name. He did it all for his glory. That's not naming. Naaman's from Syria. He's an Aramite. They have a false God, and if you want their false God to do something for you, you've got to pay for it. You've got to bring a sacrifice. You've got to bring something of incredible value. And the greater miracle you want, the greater the value of your gift has to be. Now, listen here's Christianity. You want to be saved? Friend? You want your soul to be in heaven for eternity? You can bring your three million to God. It's not going to work. Or you can bring your perfect church attendance. Or you can try really hard. You can do all the good works. You can do what we saw in that video. But nothing is going to work. And it's not going to do it. Something has to pay for our sins. And God, the Father, will do it by sending His Son, Jesus. Jesus is going to live perfectly. Jesus is going to uphold the entire law. Jesus is going to be without sin, and He's going to climb on that cross. He's going to die for us. He's going to be buried, and He's going to be risen on the third day. The bank is going to accept the check of the atonement of Jesus Christ, and checks of forgiveness can be cashed. That's grace. God did... For us, what we could not do ourselves. And Naaman is about to be saved. Listen, the same way that everybody is. have you ever wondered how were people saved in the Old Testament before Jesus came? Well, listen, it's always been the same. It's by grace through faith. And here's what Ephesians says. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Naaman arrives to Samaria, the capital of Israel. And he appears before King Joram. He is the king of Israel. And he gives his appeal Can you please heal me of leprosy? And the faithless king throws up his hands. He thinks Syria is trying to provoke him back to war. You're going to send your commander to me to do the impossible. Nobody's ever been healed of leprosy. You're trying to get me back to war. Tempers are flaring. Things are heating up. Elisha knows what's happening. He sends word to King Joram. Let him come now to me, verse 8, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman takes his entourage, he's got chariots, plural, he's got servants, plural, and the gifts he's got with him, and they arrive at Elisha's door, they arrive at Elisha's home, but Elisha wouldn't even come talk to him, instead he sends a messenger to him with instructions, go wash seven times in the Jordan River, it's 25 miles away, right to the east, Naaman is furious Naaman is important. He is the number two man of Syria and Elisha will not even come out to talk to me He is furious. He turns around to go home Nothing has gone the way that he has expected the prophet didn't come out to me like he says to me verse 11. He didn't call on his God He didn't wave his hands over the spot of my leprosy and cure it I said, water's not going to work. The Jordan River's not going to do it. If I'm going to go into a river, my rivers back home are a whole lot better than any water in, in Israel. That's his pride. And all the while, I love this, Elisha is partnering with God to reduce Naaman by exposing his God does that for us, right? How many times has God exposed your pride? And how many times have you reacted to seeing it with that nauseating, sickening, almost angry feeling, God, when will I ever get this out of me? Listen, Christian brother and sister, you're going to be battling. I'm going to be battling this pride. It's located in our flesh, that unredeemed part that the gospel is continuing to sanctify. You're going to battle it. I'm going to battle it for the rest of our lives until eternity. God is exposing Naaman's heart and his servants. Come to him and they say, listen, if he had told you to do something great. In other words, if he had done something as great as you think you are, then you would have done it. You would have listened. Then why don't you do this? Naaman relents of going back home and he goes to the Jordan and he dips seven times. And that seventh time he comes out of the water. And his flesh was restored, and the leprosy was gone. But infinitely more important, he was saved eternally. And how do you know that? Well, look at verse 15. And then he returned to the man of God. He returns to Elisha. He and all of his company, and he came, and he stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. That's salvation. That's a testimony. That's evidence of a new heart. So now accept a present from your servant. He wants to give this $3 million. Listen, he doesn't want to pay for his miracle. He wants to express gratitude for his miracle. This is what the the child of God ought to be like. When you realize that God has saved you, when you realize what God has done, it ought to pour out of your heart, friends, a gratitude to God. You've got everything. You have it all. Elisha turns it down. He turns down $3 million. You know what's going to happen in just the next chapter? They're going to be back at war with Syria, and Syria is going to besiege Samaria to the point, now listen, where a donkey's head, its the head of a donkey, for food would cost 80 shekels of silver a donkey was an unclean animal you were not to eat a donkey but that siege had gotten so desperate they had made Israel so hungry so famished they were starting to eat unclean animals listen this is horrific they were beginning to eat their own babies read the story says that the dung from a dove which may be the name of a plant or it could be literal dung from a dove would sell for five shekels of silver three million dollars was going to come in handy in one chapter and Elisha says no because he's a man of God it's a little discernment this is a little bit of a rabbit trail when you're going to a church or you're examining and discerning a national speaker or a evangelist, if you see somebody that is pulled and tempted by money turn them off the man of god should not be pulled and tempted by money you should be able to renounce money you should be able to renounce the love of money to be able to pursue god even if there's no money to be had well, there's more to this story that you can read, but we haven't even looked at our unsung hero. We leapfrogged over her, but we're going to return to her, and I'll go back to verse 2, and let's take a look at this unsung hero. Now, the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were, the, were, the, were with the prophet who is in Samaria? He would cure him of his leprosy. Now watch this. This is what she does. She just peeks in from the shadows for a moment. You just get to see her for a split second. You're never going to meet this girl again. You will never see her in any real estate of the scriptures again after verse 4. She won't be mentioned again. But you get to see her for three verses, verses two, three, and four. And all of a sudden, we get to see a lot. We get to see what an unsung hero can do. And let me give you three things at least. I think there's more, but let me give you three things that we can learn from this little girl. She's a little slave girl. And they involve the past, the present, and the future. Number one, she let go of the past. Now, the Syrians on one of the raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. Now, listen, you're that little girl, or you're maybe a little boy in the same situation. You're an Israelite, and you've been captured. There was a raid from the Syrians. All that means is they have a small band of soldiers. They go a little bit across the border into a border town. They take what they can, and they go back into their land, and they're after two things. Slaves and spoils, it's all they want. She's captured, she's taken from her family. She's old enough to have known about a prophet, so she's not taken as a baby and for all she knew, grew up as a a Syrian or an Aramite. She's old enough to know where Naaman can go for help. She knows there's a prophet in Israel. She's taken from her family, she's taken from her friends, she's taken from her community, her religion, and she's captured and she's put into this family as a slave. She's not holding on to that with bitterness. She's not seeking vengeance. She's not gloating over the leprosy of Naaman. She's not enslaved to her past. She's refusing, she's not rather refusing to let go of unforgiveness or hatred. She's living with the same mindset that the Jewish people would have to learn when God allowed them to be defeated and taken to Babylon. He said this, thus the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel to all the exiles, their slaves, whom I have sent He's sovereign into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Listen, let's bring this into modern times before we go on. Are you in a job that you hate? Are you in a school system that you can't stand? Are you in a period of your life, maybe in the neighborhood that you don't want to be in or in a home that you don't like? Listen, God is utterly sovereign. And when God puts you in some place, he's got a plan. He's got a purpose for you to do a work that can bring him glory right where you are. He says, I sent you to Babylon. Here's what I want you to do. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons, build your families. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply right where you are and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Why are we down here in Easton? Listen, we were a very comfortable church up on College Hill. We had 39 acres in Lower Nazareth. The idea was to build a big, one monolithic sanctuary with a multi-purpose room and walking paths and amphitheaters that was the plan. That was 2005. In 2006, the Lord made it clear. No, I don't want you going out in the suburbs. I want you going down where the people need to hear the gospel. I want you to go down into Easton. So we bought this building. And we birthed another campus. And we are seeking the welfare of Easton, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. This is God's plan for God's people. He's sending us out into the world as missionaries. Amen? Amen. We've got this little Israelite slave girl seeking the welfare of Naaman with a genuine heart of love. She is a slave in his home. You ever been a slave? Not teenagers. That doesn't count. When your parents tell you you have chores to do, that's not the same thing. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be taken away from your family and all that you know, all that you love, put into a hostile, foreign, pagan home and yet release the bitterness and love the people that you're serving? I don't know if there's anything more powerfully convincing to the world than a heart that's been changed by grace. Are you unchained from your past? Has grace allowed you to let go and forgive something terrible that was done against you? See, unforgiveness is a prison. And there is no love in that prison. And there are people that I have met, people that I know who are in that, that prison of unforgiveness. And if God's grace does not rescue them, they're going to die there. And it is wreaking physical, emotional, and spiritual destruction. But not for this little girl. She's an unsung hero there's more to her story she was faithful in the present he said to her mistress verse 3 would that my lord were with the prophet who is in samaria he would cure him of his leprosy she was faithful in the present listen it's not always the way of god for salvation to occur by just one person sharing the good news listen statistics tell us it takes a multitude of people a multitude of times on average before some sharing christ sharing the gospel before somebody will bend their knee to jesus listen if you're just proclaiming the gospel and you're thinking it's going to happen in one time that would be an anomaly that's not the way it normally occurs i find it wonderful to realize that god often does not just use one person in a person's salvation that each of those people who have been faithful to witness you don't need to know all the answers she's a little girl she doesn't know all the theology if naaman were to turn to her and say well little israelite girl can you tell me the attributes and the character of god Can you tell me what his transcendence and his eminence mean and exactly the definition for sovereignty and the impeccability of his will? Can you do all of that? And she would have said, no, I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't know any of that. I just know that you can find help from the prophet in Israel. If it wasn't for that little slave girl, where would Naaman have been? Listen, friends, look at me. I'm going to tell you where he would have been. Sooner or later, he would have been dead, and he would have been dead for eternity, burning in hell. That's where Naaman was headed. Leprosy always spreads. And if it wasn't his death, listen, this is where Naaman's going. He was headed toward infamy. He was headed towards forced separation, forced seclusion from his wife and his family, rejection from his king and rejection from his soldiers. This is where Naaman is going. If it wasn't for that little girl had no theology degree she didn't work on the staff of a church she didn't read dozens of books on evangelism she simply pointed Naaman in the direction of one who could help listen who can't do that is there any of you that cannot simply say I don't have all the answers but I know the one who does his name is Jesus Christ and I want to introduce you to him She was faithful in her present. But listen, one more point, and I love this one. She was confident for the future. I want you to listen to her confidence. Look what it says. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. And look what Naaman, Naaman felt that confidence. Look at verse four, so Naaman went, And he goes to his king, his lord, thus and so. This is what the little girl said to me from the land of Israel. He had confidence. She was so persuasive. She was so confident that it bled into him that he went to his king and said, if she says it, then I think it's true. Now look at her words at verse 3. She didn't say he might, the prophet, might cure Naaman, but he could, she stated it as fact, not possibility. Listen, when you're sharing Christ, when you're evangelizing, you don't share that something might happen, that it could possibly happen if you put your faith in Jesus, it's that it will happen because listen, your greatest proof is your own life. But here's my question and I want you to think about it with me. She says, My master needs to see the prophet who is in Samaria. He didn't even say his name. She just heard about him. And then she says, he would cure him of his leprosy. Now listen, how would she know this? How would she know that? Because Jesus. Us what incredible faith she had, what incredible confidence in Luke 4, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only name in the Syrian. In other words, nobody has ever been clean from leprosy. She's never seen somebody healed. Not from leprosy. How could she have this confidence? And why would she put any confidence in a prophet of God anyways? Now listen, look at this. Where had her God gotten her? Where had her confidence in a benevolent, kind, powerful God that could work a miracle through his prophets, where is that confidence put her? It's taken her away from her family. It's ripped her away from her friends. It put her into a... Slavery situation You know what that tells you? This is my only conclusion Faith is not something that you muster up Through sheer determination Faith is a gift from God It's boundless And unhinged And unleashed from your circumstances, you can have the greatest faith in the lowest circumstances. Because God offers it and Jesus perfects it. The gift. I don't see any other explanation. How this little girl with all of her experiences could have believed to the point That she would encourage her master to see the prophet in Samaria. Listen, what if she was wrong? What if Naaman goes to Elisha and Elisha can't heal her master and he comes home humiliated and full of despair? Where would he vent his humiliation? Without doubt, she had been taught the stories of God's redemption when she was a little girl in Israel. Parents, don't lose confidence in what you have taught your children of God. Listen, even if they have walked away, they are eating the pods of pigs. Don't lose confidence. Double down, teach them all the more, connect life to God as often as you can. Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, it will not depart from it. That is not a promise. What that means is that's an assurance of what will normally happen when you obey God and you parent righteously. But often the greatest faith you will ever see is in a young person. And guess what? I have a unique advantage to be able to tell you that. I was a youth pastor for 13 years and a lead pastor now for eight. And some of the greatest examples of faith that I have ever seen in my over 20 years of ministry have been in young people. They're not old enough to doubt. Take God and His Word. And if you're hearing me today and you are a young person, listen to what the Apostle Paul says to you. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and faith. Listen in love, in faith, in purity. Be that example. But for all of us, let go of God's, let go of your past by God's grace. Be faithful in your present. Be confident for the future. Be an unsung hero and do great things for God's kingdom. There is no age limit required. Now I want to end this message maybe a little differently than I typically do. And I want to ask you a question. You are, I think, like me, living in the shadows. We're not in the limelight. I'm no David Jeremiah, I'm no Char- Charles Stanley. I'm just a little preacher, lead pastor of a small church in Lehigh Valley. And you're probably not in the limelight either. You're probably living right where I am, right in the shadows. We're the little Cessnas and around us are the big Boeings. Do you wanna be used by God in spectacular ways well is there something in your past that you've got to let go of you have to remember when you look in the rear view of your life you see God's fingerprints everywhere and you rejoice even when he navigated you through the wilderness and the trials and are you being faithful in your present? are you full of confidence for your future You will not do anything for the Lord if you do not have great faith. He is perfecting that faith. You know how he's gonna do it? Listen, he's gonna invite you to his word. He's gonna say, open it up and do more than just read it for five minutes. I want you to study me through my word because I've revealed who I am. And month after month, Year after year of you knowing God through his word, he will make himself known to you and your faith will grow. And when little things happen in your life, you will reflectively point it to God's glory. And when big things happen to your life, you will immediately give fame to his name. And when trials come into your life, you will not bow down in despair. You will bow down in prayer and you will come back to the throne of mercy and say, father, this is too great for me but it is not too great for you take me by your righteous right hand and let me not stumble let me walk and not grow weary and let me fly like the eagles because that's what isaiah 40 promises and he will say i've been waiting i've been waiting for a little girl that's stuck in syria so i've got somebody I'm going to use you. Get them safe.